Take a network break. Hey, this episode is being recorded on National Donut Day in the United States. I didn't know the U.S. had a National Donut Day, but I'm not surprised it's a thing. So happy National Donut Day and wherever you are, hoist a virtual donut and join us for our regular dash through this week's tech news. We've got a bunch of products from Cisco. We're going to talk about Amazon Sidewalk. We have HPE's financial results and much more. We're sponsored in part today by Palo Alto Networks, securely enable remote workforce with Palo Alto Networks Prisma Access. It's a cloud-delivered security that protects all user and application traffic while ensuring an exceptional user experience. You can get a virtual test drive at paloaltonetworks.com slash resources slash test dash drives. And stay tuned after the news. We're having a Tech Bytes conversation on Wi-Fi 6E. That's the latest upgrade to the Wi-Fi 6 standard is taking advantage of newly available unlicensed spectrum. We're going to talk with Aruba about their forthcoming Wi-Fi 6E access point and discuss highlights of the standard. And Aruba is the Tech Bytes sponsor. Last but not least, a reminder, we produce a free weekly newsletter. It's called the Human Infrastructure. It's all about the intersection of life and IT. We also share our favorite blogs and news stories, and there's a new essay in every issue. You can sign up and read over 200 back issues at packetpushers.net slash newsletter. Okay, to the news, Cisco recently made a raft of announcements related to its hybrid cloud strategy. We're just going to pick out a few of the most interesting. First, Cisco has announced Cloud ACI. You may have uh, heard of ACI in relation to data center automation. The big idea with Cloud ACI is that Cisco can take your security and segmentation policies that you've developed in ACI for your data center and then apply them to workloads in the public cloud. And it's supposed to serve essentially as a translation layer. So that instead of you having to figure out all of the nitpicky elements of AWS or Google or whatever, Cloud ACI is supposed to figure all that out for you. Yeah, this is a very interesting announcement because unlike it's not normal for Cisco to announce a whole portfolio of products in one big bang. And that's what this is. It's mm-hmm. not just each one of these products a few years ago would have been announced as a single thing and a single thing and a single thing. And one of the interesting things that I've said about Cisco over the last, um, say, two years, it's sort of realized that this idea of each each tiny little market is a business unit that competes with every other. This is a sign that Cisco is bringing it together and starting to unify it. Not enough, in my opinion, but we'll get into that as we go along. So this thing's called, um, without a hint of bombast, although it is, called Future Cloud. So I would not say that the cloud is the future. I think most people would believe that the cloud is here. So calling it Future Cloud is sort of a sign that we're catching up, which I think is fair. That's how I look at this. Uh, And so what Cisco's brought here is a, a whole portfolio of products. And they led off with the announcement saying, we are bringing observability and automation for hybrid cloud automation. So they're doing the whole hybrid cloud thing, that is um, trying to bring a cloud platform together that orchestrates on-prem and off-prem. They're going to orchestrate bare metal. They're going to orchestrate public cloud resources, and they're going to do it all from a single platform hosted in the cloud. That's like the starting context. Is that where you come from? Yeah, that's what I got as well. Yes, it's very much there, uh, a hybrid cloud, or I think maybe multi-cloud strategy is more what they were going for with this. Yeah, that's right. So they started off talking about Thousand Eyes. I think they see Thousand Eyes as a key part of this portfolio or a key differentiator. So they led with it in this announcement. We've talked a lot about Thousand Eyes. Obviously, Thousand Eyes has been a longtime sponsor of the Packer Pushes here, and we've talked about seeing the product evolve from its internet visibility to what it is today, which is a much more wider observability and automation platform. So now they're embedding the Thousand Eyes probes inside of all the other products and a lot of other products inside of the suite can now, uh, so like the Nexus managers can now deploy Thousand Eyes probes directly into switches and routers as a native, as a native feature. Yep. Uh, so that was the first step. So you're starting to get some visibility into the wide area network, into the internet, into various SaaS platforms because that's what Thousand Eyes was doing. Uh, the second part that they were talking about was that they're extending Cisco Cloud ACI to extend to Google Cloud. So that means that Cloud ACI, which is the version of ACI that is hosted in the cloud uh, and extends to managing both your on-prem and your off-prem infrastructure, uh, now adds to AWS and Azure now adds Google Cloud to it. Yeah, and I think uh, you know that's smart, particularly from a hybrid cloud play. If you're thinking about wanting to have some workloads that can move between private and public cloud, or you need elements to do that, you want to have security controls, you want to have a uniform policy layer. Uh, so it makes sense that Cisco, I think, would extend ACI into the cloud. Uh, but we're also seeing a lot of competition ramp up here in this sort of overlay cloud management. We did an event with Alkira about how they do it. There's also companies like Aviatrix and Packet Fabric playing in the space. So Cisco's got its work cut out. Yeah, it does. And I think in the sense that like a lot of the people who I've been fairly 
negative about ACI over time, largely because of the problems that it's had. Uh, people c continue to tell me that they struggle with implementation. And a lot of the complaints are based on the fact that they have to buy a half a million dollars worth of, of Cisco's proprietary servers. They're not allowed to run right. on anything else. They have to deploy six of them. You know, there has to be six instances and each one requires all this, all this hardware. And now that cloud ACI is here, then Cisco has to run all of that. And I think that's great because it means that Cisco will have to start to address the challenges around the automation. So if they're going to need to run a system which runs, you know, they need 30 massive VMs to run the cloud ACI instances, well, that's their cost, not yours, although they'll pass that cost on to you, right? Um, but that's uh -huh. their problem, not yours. You're not required to buy all of this hardware to get it up and running. So I'm very on board with cloud ACI. And if you're a customer who thinks that ACI fits your needs, then it's great. Although I think ACI... Um, I still struggle with ACI's got flexibility. They wanted to make the point that ACI is incredibly flexible and its ability to take policy and map it onto endpoints is market leading. And I think that's correct, but I also think that ACI's greatest feature is the number of features that it has, but also that flexibility causes complexity and that complexity causes customers to stumble. So um I, I I've come to think that the real solutions probably more like products like Glueware or Appstra or Forward Networks who try and keep the solutions fairly simple and say, look, there's a way to do this. Like the Appstra format says, this is how you do it. These are the ways that we don't want to move outside of these because if you do, the product gets unwittingly complex and causes problems. So I think feature creep is a problem for Cisco. It likes to have all the features. It likes to listen to customers asking for pink fluffy slippers instead of having steel-toed work boots. Right. Uh, my issue is the uh, difficulty in being able to have a uniform policy layer that works across all three public clouds because they've got different ways of doing things. They've got different nomenclature. They've got different primitives. Um, and so part of the issue you get with that is if you're looking for a uniform policy enforcement layer, you sort of have to go to least common denominator. Um, and then as they roll out, the clouds roll out new services and capabilities that uniform policy layer has to try to keep up. So I think it's a, it's a difficult problem. I don't know. Well, I can see why Cisco is tagging ACI as the way to do it, because obviously it makes sense if you've invested a lot of time and effort in building policy and segmentation on in the data center, you want to be able to migrate that as much as possible to cloud, but it's just a big challenge to take on. Yeah, I think so. But on the other hand, if you're a Cisco ACI customer and you've got this operating your data center fabric and you're content with the features that you're working and the way it maps policy onto intent, you know, maps intent and policy into the network architecture, this could be a very useful feature. So if you are a Cisco customer, this is probably a good extension. Uh, the second part of the announcement was ICE 3.1. It's the Internet Security Engine, I think it's called. Um, uh -huh. And they're bringing that sort of network access control focus to the public cloud as well. So they're saying if you've been using ICE 3.1 on the campus or if you've maybe been using it in the data center, they're now extending that same product into the public cloud. So access control... Uh, very useful in terms of being able to um, manage the what can access what and the ability to do micro-segmentation with beyond just this policy gives you a micro-segment, this actually gives you dynamic permission control. So that's good. And also cloud-hosted, same thing. Right. If you don't want to host ICE yourself, you can now run it out of the cloud. That's it. Now, the question here about ICE, and this is what I raised with them, is what about Duo security? So um, if I was going to do network access control or control of resources, I would want to have Duo Security running that so that I could identify. Uh, the challenge with ICE is it just does network access control. It doesn't do identity management. And most often you're better off with identity management than just NAC, right? And the idea of NAC in the cloud is a bit thin. I'm not sure. Like it makes sense to extend your ICE policy engine into the public cloud so that you can use the same tooling that you've been done on the campus. But it, there's some voices in the back of my head saying, can I take the ideas of campus networking and put them in the public cloud? Is that, you know, if I'm born in the campus, can I map that into the public cloud? Does that make sense? Yeah. So we, you and I both had a briefing with them on this and you raised that issue about ICE versus Duo and they got back to us and one of the ways they positioned it was, why not both? So there's that aspect of it. And I think the second way they parsed it out is that ICE is primarily about sort of device control uh, to the network, whereas Duo actually gets into each individual application session, providing a layer of control there. So 
they are in some way solving different problems and then trying to integrate them to work together could be an <laughs> yeah, issue. Yeah, it just it's just interesting that you know, like Cisco's got uh, still got a portfolio where a lot of products overlap. Um, ICE has a checkered history. It's had a bit of a rough birthing, like ACI, and I, I could wish perhaps that Cisco would put some of these things behind them and move on. But uh, you know, on the flip side, if I'm a customer with ICE, I would want to see that investment extended and reused. That's an old style way of thinking. I don't think that's a very innovative way of thinking, but there you go. Uh, the second thing they also made a point in this product was Intersight. Uh, Cisco's Intersight is their ability to start doing cloud orchestration, workload orchestration, workload optimizations, um, so that you can have workloads either on-prem or off-prem, and Intersight will be able to monitor those for you and move those workloads around. So this is the, uh, largely based around the idea of cloud cost control, some of this other of it is what's my asset management of the cloud looks like? Where are my resources? What's running? Why is it? And that's my understanding of Intersight. So having that there in this portfolio makes sense. If you're going to orchestrate the network, if you're going to put probes in there, if you're going to have identity management, uh, you know, ICE doing NAC, then you need to start having, well, this is where my workloads play. So they're wrapping around that and doing the orchestration. So the other side of Intersight is that you can now orchestrate workloads. I can say this workload connects to this, this, and you get this. GUI-based, low-code designer. So Cisco's moving in two directions with automation. Customers can be Pythoning and terraforming and ansibling to their heart's content, but Cisco's Intersight Cloud Orchestration also has a low-code, GUI-based engine, low-code design, so you can drag and drop the various elements for common workflows, making it easier for people to get on board. Right, and sticking with that sort of hybrid cloud model, Intersight is also the SaaS platform for managing all of your UCS uh, appliances. That's right, which is important because as you grow and we and we'll skip it, we'll come to at the end of this. This will make more sense because Cisco's actually got a whole um, hardware announcement at the back of this. Uh, Intersight becomes very important because they've now announced a service mesh manager. They bought a company called Banzai Cloud, which was a service mesh orchestrator for Istio. So what uh -huh. they've done is acquired Banzai Cloud, integrated it into the uh, cloud ACI so that they can now manage a service mesh uh, based around Istio. So if you're using a Kubernetes service and you're using an Istio service mech architecture, you now have a GUI and visibility tooling to be able to do that. I imagine over time that service mesh manager would fold into cloud ACI and in one way... Uh, sorry, no, it's service mesh manager is right now integrated with Insight. Right. That, that's asking yeah. for so it's a separate, cloud orchestration. It's a separate product. It's separate from cloud ACI. But it ACI, should be part yeah. of your ACI policy. It shouldn't be a separate thing. Does it make sense? I see where you're going, mm. yes, uh, because if you're going to manage uh, <laughs> permissions and segmentation, you want to be able to do that down at the into your container clusters as well. Yeah, so um, I imagine that over time, this service mesh manager will become part of Cloud ACI because the service mesh is just a piece of the network. If you have a policy that says, I want this micro segment, I don't want to have it to do it twice, once in Service Mesh Manager and another in Cloud ACI. Right. The thing I like about Service Mesh Manager is that it's leveraging Istio, so they're not trying to do it themselves and uh, add something else to the market. Istio is sort of where a lot of Service Mesh is converging, so Cisco's drafting on that, which I think is smart. Um, and my takeaway was that Service Mesh Manager gives you all of the capabilities that you'll get with Istio using Istio, but it also adds a visibility layer on top. If you want to see how all of the components and services inside your cluster are connected, Service Mesh Manager does that in addition to all the Istio stuff like load balancing, service discovery, et cetera. Mm -hmm. yep. uh, and last but not least, the new hardware announcement is that they've got a new UCS family. They're calling it the X series. Uh, and they're essentially positioning this as a kind of new combo of a rack blade system. Yeah, this is really interesting. In an era of one IU servers, and most organizations have moved to one IU, Cisco's bringing back the rack server, you know, with the blade modules from 10 years ago. And there was a time there when rack servers were going to save us from ourselves and they were going to modernize the way. And I think most customers realized they were, took the view that they were just a way to lock in to a particular vendor branded piece of custom hardware. And there was a general dissatisfaction fairly quickly and people abandoned them at very, very rapidly, I thought. Do you remember the hype around Blade servers at the time? They were all into it. They really were, yeah. I think part of it was that uh, instead of having to provision an entire <laughs> group of servers, you could sort of add in Blades as you went, which is, you know, 
but now we're with the uh, sort of pay-as-you-go model. And so the, part of that is the reason I think Blades didn't work, but also the fact that you needed a separate management system just to operate the Blades themselves as opposed to doing everything else you needed on top of that. And I think the key here would be that uh, this the Insight Manager could bring the, cl- the rack scale stuff back to the market. So the the challenge was last time is that you had one manager for this blade, one manager for this blade. You had the network, which was separate from the computer. There was no way to bring it back together. HPE went through its composable infrastructure phase where it tried to address all of these things. Um, then you had a situation where they started to introduce storage blades. And then I also remember a lot of people saying that blade servers, the rack shelves themselves were always a thousand millimeters or a meter deep. And most people have 800 mil racks. And so they couldn't buy them because the only way you can fit <laughs> enough racks into this, like the, enough blades into the space was if you had these very, very, very long and one meter was common, 1.2 meter wasn't uncommon. And you could go down people's data centers and there would be this rack that was had the back door pulled off <laughs> and there was the back of this uh-huh. blade server uh-huh. sticking out the back. And that's not what you want for <laughs> airflow. You can't do that in high density airflows anymore. Right. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out, whether customers will want that. Cisco has taken steps in the architecture, what they've done this time to make the rack less obsolete or more less more resilient to obsolescence is it's got no backplane so it just is literally um an empty chassis with some mounting slots and then as you put the modules home each one of the modules carries the backplane in itself and can connect to other devices um it looks like a fairly innovative way i'll let you go up and read up on the details i remain less convinced although it has to be said in an era of hyperconverged architecture of buying a rack of something this might fly. If you're going to say to customers, here we go, we're going to sell you infrastructure by the VM. We're going to rent you infrastructure like we've seen with HP Esmeral and and Dell coming up with the same rent by the VM type stuff. This might be the way. It might be cheaper to make build these and ship these out or something, I suppose. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, I guess the way they're positioning the value prop is sort of that composable infrastructure story in that you can mix and match compute blades, GPU blades, accelerators, and storage uh, depending on your workloads and your needs. And that's all managed from that Insight SaaS service. So it'll be interesting to see how that works out, how people want it. I, I just find racks very difficult to believe. They're trying to make the pitch as well that we're going to see memory uh, separate from the CPU. And we're talking about new types of the CXF, CXI bus. And maybe you could have a whole blade of just memory and then a whole blade of CPUs. But we've been right. talking about rack scale architecture for 15 years and it hasn't come out. Now, that's not to say that there isn't a turning point at which rack scale architecture works. Uh, NetApp tried it recently with their AI chassis. They started about two years ago, three years ago, and it doesn't really been successful. I noticed that NVIDIA started talking about the same idea with its AI processing engines. Um, is, this the to- is this the right time for a return to this idea of rack scale architecture where you have a blade of CPUs, a blade of ARP drives, a blade of memories, a blade of networking, and then you dynamically allocate it? I'm not sure. I think customers are more into the one IU. I put that in, I use it, I have workloads moving around between it. Do I really need custom hardware to make that on-prem, on-premise cloud? I'm not sure. Well, as you mentioned earlier, Cisco does like to have one for every conceivable use case. So they are sticking with that model. So it would seem, yeah. So we've got links in the show notes if you want to go uh, try to digest all of the stuff we threw at you uh, on your own, but we'll move on. Microsoft has announced that, that it's acquiring a startup called Refirm Labs. Refirm Labs analyzes firmware for security vulnerabilities, particularly in IoT and OT devices. Uh, the technology behind Refirm is based on an open source project called Binwalk that can analyze and reverse engineer firmware. Yeah, I don't know much about this. Um, what, what do you think about, is there anything about this that makes IoT security more than just a secure operating system here? I mean, I think the fact that, so the way that it works is uh, Microsoft is going to put this software in its Azure Defender for IoT service, which I guess is a service they offer where you can, where either a, uh, a manufacturer can use this service to examine their firmware to see if it has vulnerabilities and then fix them before they ship, which would be great. Or if you own a bunch of IoT devices and you're not sure about the firmware, you can get this analyzed through this Microsoft service and then press your manufacturer to post updates. So it's definitely, we know that IoT is certainly a risk because you can't put security agents on them. Um, they they can be, mm. they're 
they present us they present more uh foothold for attackers so uh, it, it seems like this is a small way that microsoft is saying we're going to help you with this uh security of iot software yeah well that's a step in the right direction i mean it takes not only a secure operating system but a way to patch them and so if they're going to incorporate the operating system and then the patching of the operating system into a central engine then people who are making cheap, low-cost devices who don't have the skill to do that, like once you're Amazon, of course, or, or Apple, you can update your Apple AirTags or your Amazon Alexa things at scale. But if you're a smaller manufacturer making for a niche use case, then this makes sense. Rent something from Microsoft and they're giving you a secure RS with patches, with an administration console to, to do all of that. And I think that makes sense. I, my understanding is that Microsoft is not claiming responsibility for the security of the software and it's not handling patches mm. and updates. They're leaving that to the manufacturer. They're just giving you, they're giving the manufacturer an opportunity to check its software and giving device owners yeah, an opportunity to check software. Yeah, I think yeah. <laughs> it's less helpful. Yeah, congratulations. Yes. Test your device. I don't want to test my device. Okay. Do, do you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> I do, but I, I guess I feel like we know that a lot of IoT manufacturers don't take security seriously. So if there's at least some way you can find out for yourself whether there's issues, then you can take steps, including pressing the manufacturer for upgrades. But yeah, it's not ideal, but given the way things are, it's, I guess, I would say better than nothing. Yeah. So, you know, I think, you know, giving me a tool that analyzes firmware for security vulnerabilities, isn't that what we do in Linux today? You know, isn't that, oh, well, whatever. I don't know. <laughs> In any case, uh, Microsoft did not disclose the purchase price of the acquisition, so I'm guessing it wasn't material. Uh, moving on, IDG Group, they operate the analyst firm IDC and publish a variety of tech sites. They've been acquired by private equity firm Blackstone for $1.3 billion. IDC publications you might recognize include Computer World, Network World, and PC World. So the angle to this story that I wanted to take on here is sort of to highlight that the discussion around this is not about the media. It's not about the websites. It's not about the public face of this business. It's about the data and analytics that it has. So they would say that IDG Publishing has value in that it connects data from people who go and log into its websites. It has IDC, which is the analyst firm, which has data and analytics about what's actually happening in the marketplace. And they see uh, that process as being worth $1.3 billion Apparently, they think that that can be monetized. And we've seen so many people get into this business around the uh, whole idea of data and analytics. And um, I think that's the angle. Does that make sense? Yeah, I definitely suspect that IDC, the analyst firm, was the primary target here because the tech media industry is struggling uh, and struggling hard. So mm. uh, this is, I guess, apparently the CEO of IDG Group is going to stay on uh, through the acquisition and says that his goal is growth. That's not technically how private equity firms usually work, though. So we'll see what happens. Okay. Um, so it'll be very interesting to see what's happening. I think it's really interesting. I mean, if you're running a media company like, in fact, Packet Pushes, of course, is a media analyst company too. The, the difference between us and a lot of other companies is we don't actually track you. We won't trace you. We won't follow you. We won't try and find out. We're not, we're not selling lists of you. Yeah. Whereas every time you go to an IDG website, you actually have to log in and then they know who you are. They know how to track you. They know, you know, that sort of stuff. Does that make sense? And yep. we won't ever be a big corporate success because we won't put surveillance on you, the audience. And without that data, we can't charge high prices because all of the execs in the vendor companies that we talk to when they do sponsorships, they say, well, give, show me the analytics, show me the names and addresses of all the people, show me where they are, what they do, show me, you know, all this, you know, how many of them listen for how long. And we go, we, we don't want to collect that data because that's just rude. And, and so we'll never be a success. But that is the sort of thing that they are being trained. They're not... Uh, a lot of these executives no longer have a sense of what's happening in the market. They will only act if they have data and there's money in data because you can pay for that instead of using instinct and learning and talking to customers. It's no longer enough to just talk to customers. You have to have data instead. That's right. Yeah. And again, that's why I think IDC was the primary target for this acquisition. Uh, just a quick break to tell you about Ashmark today, Palo Alto Networks. Uh, we know that nobody's going back to the office or that the office is going to be very different. Um, in fact, most businesses understand that a remote, flexible working environment is the key. It's going to be the way we do things. 
The issue is that moving to a predominantly remote workforce puts a lot of pressure on legacy networking and security. And so many organizations are grappling with the limitations of their current architectures, including scalability, security, and performance. Palo Alto Networks want to help you scale your remote workforces without compromise. You can securely enable remote workforces with Palo Alto Networks cloud-delivered security. It's called Prisma Access. It consolidates point products into a single converged cloud-delivered platform, and it protects all users and all application traffic with complete best-in-class security while ensuring an exceptional user experience. You can experience Prisma Access cloud-delivered security now when you sign up for a virtual ultimate test drive. You can sign up for the ultimate test drive at paloaltonetworks.com slash resources slash test dash drives. That's paloaltonetworks.com slash resources slash test dash drives. We'll also have that link in the show notes of this episode. All right, back to the news. On June 8th in the United States, Amazon is going to debut a new wireless mesh service called Sidewalk. Sidewalk creates a wireless mesh among Amazon devices, including ring security cameras and Echo smart speakers. And the idea is that you borrow a bit of wireless from your neighbor to the left of you and your right of you, and all these wireless devices create this mesh so that you can extend the range of wireless devices from Amazon and from Amazon partners such as Tile. Yeah, so this is really interesting in the sense that we've seen a number of companies try and build networks over the top of the internet that do custom services. Uh, the one we've talked about most recently is Apple's Thread uh, system, which is largely intended as a personal area network. That is, if you have an AirTag and if you have an iPhone or if you have a, an Apple Home, uh, an Apple TV, they all network with a network over the top of your Wi-Fi. They don't use IP. Although the, the network runs on IP, it doesn't actually use natural IP. They use an, an overlay, kind of like the way that TLS is an overlay over TCP or over UDP, mm -hmm. right? So it's not an overlay mm -hmm. network like SD-WAN or IPSEC, but it's conceptually similar to it. I think the the part about this that is really quite provocative is that every Amazon device that's been produced in the last, I don't know, year two, three, is getting a software update which turns them on and turns them into a node in this network. So Amazon Sidewalk is all those Amazon Ring devices that you see out there, if they're connected to the internet, and they are, then they are now able to act as gateways. And any Amazon sidewalk device that's walking down the street will use your ring to transmit data back to head office. Right. That's the whole idea. So yeah. for example, one of the examples they give is if you've got a wireless pet tracker and that pet wanders out of the range of your Wi-Fi, it's off the grid. But if it's part of now this sidewalk network, then you know, it essentially extends the range of these little wireless tags and mobile devices. Uh, the issue for me here is that everybody who owns these Amazon devices is being automatically opted in yes. to Sidewalk. Mm -hmm. Whether or not you want to participate, you're just in. You're in. Unless uh, you, you have to go out. in and turn it off yourself. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Which, of course, we know is exactly the, what people, that's a dark pattern. Because, you know, this is the way Apple knows that people want their privacy, but until they opted out by default, nobody ever opted out. Uh, and now that they've said, no, this is the default, opting out, uh, uh, Apple devices have become vastly more secure and Facebook is going to struggle going forward because it doesn't have enough data to do what it wants to do because they can't monitor what websites you're surfing and so forth from the device itself. I think that's one angle is the legal issue around privacy, which is growing uh, in Europe today. Both the UK and the EU have separately launched investigations into Facebook and how much data it harvests. And they aren't little ones. These are big government committees that will take a year or two to move its way through. But whatever they do at the end of it, if they decide to do something, they could really derail that whole business model. Um, the second issue here is what what happens with telcos. So most broadband providers in the world have legal powers to operate their networks exclusively. That is, uh -huh. they have a legal mandate from the government to operate the networks exclusively and that other people are not allowed to establish communicating networks. And in return, there's usually a quid pro quo. They agree to cooperate with law enforcement. They agree to pay the government fees for resources and things like that. Um, will these telcos permit Amazon to exploit their networks this way? Because they're almost bypassing broadband, bypassing 5G and putting a network over the top of the network without building a network infrastructure. So I think that's unknown as to how that might work. And it would be very difficult for telcos to block Amazon, although it's not impossible for them to do so. They might want to say, just block the traffic associated with these devices and lock them out of the market. So it may be that this could come a cropper. While Amazon is moving fast and breaking things, it might actually create political problems. 
I think Amazon is probably on sound legal ground here um, because they aren't necessarily competing with the telcos. They're just taking advantage of wireless signal that's already there. Mm -hmm. uh, they're also not charging consumers for it, so they may not run afoul of things like FTC and so on. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I'm sure <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, the Verizons and AT&Ts of the world aren't psyched about this, but I don't know that there's any way they could say, hey, you can't attach this device to your home wireless network that you paid for because I don't like Amazon building a mesh network. I, I can't see how that would fly. Yeah. The Apple version, of course, of this, the Apple thread is very different because it's very much a personal area network. So even though your Apple AirTags may come into, into contact with other Apple devices in the world, it's not just randomly connecting. It's only doing a very narrow, specific thing. This is a much wider thing. Amazon's quite brazenly saying, we're going to connect everything to this. We're going to know everything. Yep. Right? Yep. So they're going to know that you walked in and out of a high street store. They're going to know. Do you know what I mean? Like, Well, we're not there yet. Uh, and Amazon, there's a, a link to a, the white paper that Amazon published uh, talking about their security and privacy stances. And what they're saying is they can't particularly, well, with third-party devices, they can't see what traffic is being sent. They only know that it's connected and that something's happening. They are using what they call three layers of encryption uh, to ensure privacy. That's great. Um, with devices they but, own, of course, they can still see everything because that's the point. That's the point. The point is they have the data so they can see that you yeah. walked in and out of a Levi's jeans shop and suddenly you're going to see ads on Amazon's website for Levi's jeans, right? Well, there's that. Right? Yes. So, and that's not going to be stoppable because all Amazon, so if you've got a, any sort of a device in the area that talks to this network, this Amazon sidewalk, they'll be using it to track you wherever you go. So they don't need cookies. They just need to know where you are. Yeah, aside from the feature being activated by default, which I don't like, uh, Amazon also says if you uh, do use this service, uh, you as the network owner of your own wireless network do not get to decide what devices attach and don't attach. Uh, if it's all in Sidewalk, it's Amazon that gets to decide That's what right. goes onto that yeah, mesh network, not you. <clears throat> you can turn it on or off. You can choose not to share your, you know, if your Ring camera, which is on your door, you know, it's now an edge node of Amazon's network for data collection. And you can't say only my devices. It's either in or out. The other thing I, that worries me is I don't know what else Amazon will do with this network once it's up and running. What are the devices? What kind of things they'll add? How they might change terms of service? So I, if you have an Echo, if you have a Ring uh, security camera, and this doesn't sound great to you, there are links in the show notes to fig so the to tell you how to turn it off. Yes, and it'll be interesting to see what the what uh, the governments come up with because at this point the only people who can take on Amazon on this sort of topic is the governments of the countries that we live in. Okay, moving on. The Swedish telco Telia company has spun off its IP backbone unit into a standalone business called Telia Carrier. Telia Carrier aims to compete in global markets, including the United States. I think this is really fascinating. We've talked about it a couple of months ago, and now that it actually completed the separation, so Telia Carrier has been inquired by, and I quote, a long-term infrastructure investment and backed by some of the largest Swedish pension funds. Now, long-term funds are not gamblers looking to double their money every quarter like a Silicon Valley VC with an ego and an awful lot of cash that they got from nothing, right? Um, uh -huh. And the idea here is that you buy it and you get a long-term steady spending of cash in a predictable business model and it generates a steady profit margin over a 20 to 40-year time frame. Right. That is not normally how telcos see themselves. So, for example, AT&T and Verizon, for example, have been out buying media companies or buying you know, advertising companies to try and get growth and leverage our core expertise of network infrastructure. And Telia Carrier has gone exactly the opposite way and said, no, no, we're like electricity. You would be have an interesting discussion at a bar with me or in a coffee shop saying, is this the future of telcos? And if you're a backbone provider, and we did a podcast with them a while back, and they claim to be the top backbone provider, probably for some definition of top. <laughs> <laughs> some finely sliced definition yeah, that's of right, top. You know. yes. uh, then I think this in sale sort of indicates the way forward for backbone companies. So where you're a backbone provider and you're digging fiber optic into the ground and putting optical networks on the end, you are not an innovator. You are an electricity company that's producing a commodity product and you will be able to generate sustainable, long-term, profitable revenues as an infrastructure fund. And they talk about that. And in fact, uh, a blog post published by Johan Gustafsson just before he left the company, he was talking about how they rethought their internet backbone architecture. And I'll just give you some quotes here. What he was basically saying in the article, and it's worth reading the article, that Yes, relying on yesterday's truths around 
cost structures, routing silicon, operational paradigms, and complexity fall short in meeting insatiable bandwidth requirements at consistently and at a sustainable power consumption. So, and then he goes on to talk about the three things that they're doing now. Minimize time spent in sourcing and validation by automating operations and reducing complexity. Map depreciation times to new economically viable lifetime equipment, that is rotate the equipment harder. And then use shorter cycles and a rigorous technology strategy to offset some of the traditional risk adverseness. So what that breaks down to is that they're focused on the use of Broadcom DNX June chipsets. So standard commodity ASICs that we've talked about plenty here. They're moving to partially disaggregated optical networks. So this idea of IP over DWDM instead of having the optical network separated, the idea is that you would have these devices at the edge with optical interfaces doing DWDM and then widespread adoption of DWDM pluggables and standardization. So up until now, DWDM networks have been proprietary. You buy them from Siena or you know, whoever is from Cisco. And those networks are fundamentally closed and proprietary and you can't connect them. And what he's drawing into is saying, if we're going to have a long-term infrastructure business, you need to go to an idea of interchangeable devices. And the most expensive part is the pluggable, you know, the DWDM module. So let's go with standard pluggables that we can replace and rotate as needed. So very interesting in the sense that telco, this is a realization that a telco can just be a bandwidth generator and to stop pretending that there are services in there. Yeah, frankly, I think it's refreshing for uh, a, a telco company to want to do a good job providing bandwidth and that's it, as opposed to AT&T wanting to be also a media company and then having to unwind this huge investment in Time Warner because it just didn't work out because that's not what their expertise is. No. They should be focusing on delivering good service. But uh, So yeah, tip of the hat to Telia Carrier for wanting to build a sustainable networking business. And Telia Company continues. So you know, there's probably an enterprise services right. unit that's selling SD-WAN and you know, there's another one who paints off walls and you know, I don't know whatever but you know like AT&T and Verizon still believe that they are going to be you know a partner to enterprises and providing professional services and managed services well that's not what you do right when you generate electricity you don't you know <laughs> install ovens in people's homes because that always comes unstuck in the long run anyway Again, links in the show notes. Uh, moving on, a patent complaint has been filed with the International Trade Commission against a number of networking vendors, including Cisco Systems, Arista, Juniper, Aruba Networks, and Dell. The complaint seeks to block the import of equipment for violations of patents owned by a company called Proven Networks. Yeah, as far as I can tell, Proven Networks appears to be a patent troll. They've been suing or attempting to sue or running legal suits against all of the networking companies around a bunch of uh, patents, which it says that they are using and abusing. And I think the interesting part here is that uh, you may remember back in sort of the 2016 to 2018 period, Cisco brought legal action against Arista for copyright infringement, uh, and it boiled down to four patents in the end, of which only two were upheld. But part of Cisco's legal action was to petition the International Trade Commission to issue an infringement notice blocking the import of Arista products into countries. In other words take Arista off the map because competitive, you know, most people read this as by preventing Arista from having products to sell, it would take Arista off the map and stop it from being a competitor. Um, and at the time, this step that Cisco took was seen as very unusual for technology patents because they were often very hard to enforce. And now we see a patent troll using the very same legal method that Cisco used to put pressure on Cisco to pay up. Uh, irony, irony. So I detect a little bit of hoisted on their own petard to take here. Yes. I, and I, if it works, I mean, there has to be a thing. I don't think proven uh, technology networks has, you know, doesn't seem to be very successful, but it doesn't have to be totally successful. It's managed to convince, for example, extreme networks to buy into its license right. patent things. Maybe extreme right. just decided it was easier to pay. And it's going to be interesting to see who takes it from here. I'm guessing Cisco, among others, is not going to pay. So Proven is probably in for some interesting legal battles. But yeah, it's interesting to see this strategy now being used against Cisco by a patent troll. Yeah, it might be. You know, the legal stuff is always confused, and and you know, it might just be pay us some attention. We, you know, we are serious. And at some point, they're just going to escalate the legal battle to the point where maybe it's just cheaper to pay them to go away. But yeah. the American legal system is quite arcane in this way, and not to mention the patent system. But that's another conversation. All right, a quick update on chip shortages. Intel's reportedly said it could take several years for a shortage in semiconductor to resolve. Pat Gelsinger is quoted at an event saying, it, quote, it could still take a couple of years for the ecosystem to address shortages of foundry capacity, substrates, and components. That's according to Reuters. So if you're hoping to wait this out, you may want to investigate other alternatives because it could be a long wait. 
Yeah, uh, you know, now they they were saying, oh, it's only three to six months. Now it's a year. Now it's two years. That should give you some hints as to how serious this is. And the second thing that um, struck me this week is that we see the economists more generally in the press talking about inflationary pressures on the economies. So as supply dries up, you're also going to see people raising the prices of the products to get forward. And so, and the wider economy, people are expecting to be paid more. So a lot of people have changed job. So if the inflationary pressures continue, then what you might actually see is as you place an order, by the time you actually get it delivered, the price might go up 10, 20, 30%. That would be extreme, but that is possible. So your project planning could go right out the window. The other angle here to consider is that you hear rumblings from the US government about wanting to have more chip uh, manufacturing capability here in the United States. And one way to help uh, spur that money to start flowing from the government is to say, we need more investment in foundries and so on, like like that quote from Pal Kessinger just was. So I think that's also an aspect in that by keep sounding this alarm, you may uh, shake out multiple billions of dollars from the US government for investment. Yeah, um, there's nothing uh, there's nothing like a, a good mega corporation loves and free money from a government. Yep. Either not in both forms, either not paying it as a tax relief or getting it as a subsidy <laughs> to do a thing. That's exactly. That's what Silicon Valley is largely foundry. built on. Yes. Uh, and just as a side note, uh, Kevin Myers, who's on uh, Twitter as StubAreria51, we've had him on the podcast a few times. He did a Twitter poll about uh, whether folks were, how they were addressing the chip shortage, whether they were waiting it out, looking to other alternatives. Uh, I'll put a link in the show notes. You can see the responses there. Just a fun little data point. Mm-hmm. All right, our last story for the show, HPE reported its Q2 2021 financial results. Highlights include revenues of $6.7 billion, up 11% year-over-year, and earnings per share of $0.19, cents, which was well above their initial guidance. Yeah, I think the, the story here is that a couple of years ago, we were talking about HPE as, an, as a company that was really struggling to turn itself around. And when you look at HP's share price this year, it's actually doubled from around $8 to $16. That's 100% share growth in just six months, Uh, which is a uh real story. And the challenge, the reason I bring it up here is to say that HP seems to have successfully turned around a company and convinced shareholders and the financial analysts that it has a, a strategy to growth. But what's happened in this quarter is even though HP actually beat the market by four cents on revenue, profitability was up, their future profitability was under pressure, probably due to supply chain and delivery deliverables. And so the share uh-huh. price has flattened out uh, for the foreseeable future. There's not a lot of growth coming around. But at the end of the day, HPE has done a great job to turn itself around after it just dumped all of its, uh, let's call them distressed business units into a third uh-huh. party, the microfocus company, and then sold it off so that there's a company specialized in making them most of those older business units that were probably not growth orientated, not future right. orientated. And although HP retains a percentage of that company and it, the price of microfocus does have a major impact on HP's share price, I think the turnaround of HPE as a technology company um, uh, has been a, as a narrow focused niche business is actually quite a successful story. Yeah, so looking at it by segment, the compute divisions, the champion for this quarter, brought in $3 billion, up 12% year over year, and storage revenues were also up. Uh, were up. Uh, they brought in $1.1 billion. And um, I, I just wonder, is there a message here for companies like Cisco, IBM, and Dell who are dragging along all of their legacy portfolio? You know, they're looking after their old customers and looking after, whereas HP really just said, no, no, all that old stuff, we're going to put it over here where it's going to be treated as a separate and as a, and it needs a business that focuses on that capability. And we're going to go off and chase after the modern market and see it. And that's where it's pivoted to is this focus and getting away from the, you know, all of the legacy stuff. Is there something in there for Cisco, IBM, or Dell saying you should be thinking about pruning out those pieces of the business that are mature and stable and then putting them into a company that can treat them like mature, stable technology companies that will run for another 30 years, but leave the core company that can innovate and growth, you know, separate out the growth business units? I wonder if we'll see something, see if they see that expand. That's an interesting take. Uh, a lot to think about there. Yeah. We'll see. We will see. I, Cisco doesn't have a track record of spinning off uh, older units. They tend to like to keep that going, but yeah, who knows? Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that does wrap up the news portion. Stay tuned for our Tech Bytes conversation on Wi-Fi 6E and a new Wi-Fi 6E access point from Aruba. They are a sponsor for that Tech Bytes segment, and that's coming right up.
Welcome to the Tech Bytes podcast from the Packet Pushers. Today we are diving into Wi-Fi 6E. That's the extended version of the Wi-Fi 6 standard. It takes advantage of newly available spectrum in the 6 gigahertz band. We're sponsored today by Aruba, a Hewlett Packard enterprise company. And we're going to explore highlights of the standard, discuss Aruba's forthcoming 6E AP and more. Our guest is Chuck Lukashevsky. He is VP and Wireless Chief Technology Officer at Aruba. Chuck, welcome to the podcast. And can you give us the big picture? What is 6E? What's new about it? Thanks for you, uh, Greg. Nice to be here. So, yeah, Wi-Fi 6E, uh, the way to think about it is that it's Wi-Fi 6 for the 6 gigahertz band. And 6 gigahertz is a large new block of contiguous spectrum uh, that uh, has been open now by 40 countries and counting uh, around the world. We'll talk more about that. Uh, but uh, 6E is basically the uh, a new certification from the Wi-Fi Alliance that allows devices to take advantage of this new spectrum and provides uh, for interoperability mechanisms and so on to, uh, to in order to connect to and use that uh, band. So the benefit here is that I've got sort of fresh, new, clean, uncontested spectrum besides the 2.4 and 5 gigahertz that I'd normally have in my environment. So that's one of the benefits, but it's not necessarily the uh, the biggest uh, benefit that um, you know we fought so hard for this spectrum uh, and continue to to do so. Uh, we have a lot more countries to light up uh, <laughs> uh, over the coming uh, coming months. Uh, as important is getting you know the community, the Wi-Fi you know, companies that uh, deploy managed Wi-Fi systems to wider channels, specifically, you know, 80 megahertz or 160 megahertz channels. 91% of our customers today, and the numbers are similar for, you know, for other enterprise vendors, are, are running 20 or 40 megahertz channels. And the reason for that is that it turns out with Wi-Fi, you just, you know, you need a lot of channels in order to get good spatial reuse. Mm -hmm. um, and so what people do is they, in order to get that number of channels, they downsize the width. And the problem with that is that it, uh, as you know, right, when you use a narrower channel, it caps your peak burst rate. I always think of this as like a multi-lane highway. Every time yeah. I create a channel, I get a lane on the highway. But the yeah. challenge with Wi-Fi is only one car can use it at a time. So you can make lots of small channels and improve the actual throughput, but you actually limit the bandwidth of each channel when you use a lower spe lower spectral width. Yeah, so it's actually worse than that, right? So in you know a be maybe a, a better analogy would be you know, it's like a an eighty megahertz channel is like a four lane highway, right? Mm. Where a customer, you know, somebody who runs a network has put out cones and has blocked off, you know, two of the lanes, basically. Yeah. <laughs> right. So getting up to six gig just gives us this massive amount of spectrum because there's so much, uh, they didn't just allocate a bit of capacity around six gig like they did with five, because mostly around what we call five gigahertz is actually sort of between five, two and five point five point two and five point from memory. There's six gig, they actually gave us almost all of it. Yeah, correct. Well, it depends on what country or part of the world that you're in. And, and just, just to finish the last thought and put it in some real numbers for a second. So the, the, the peak speed you can hit in a 40 megahertz channel is 600 megabits per second. So if you, know, if you want to get to gigabit plus, you have to go to 80s, right, or wider. So that's that's yeah. the the punchline there. As far as the number of channels and the amount of spectrum, so uh, it does look like here in the Americas, well, all of the hemisphere so far has has opted for the full band, which means there's 1,200 megahertz of spectrum. The lone sort of question mark uh, is Argentina, which ran a consultation at 500 megahertz, but we we think that they may ultimately decide for 1200 because mm. uh, they they currently they're they're the only country that's that's left that hasn't gone all the way. Mm -hmm. um, but if you look in Europe, for example, uh, the the European model uh, starts out a little more conservatively, so they're just doing the lower 500 megahertz. So it's about as much again as we have in the five gigahertz band. So we we have we're right back to that sort of 40 megahertz uh, challenge, right? Uh, it's not enough 80s to really make a network, right? So having that extra spectrum, Chuck, does that actually change the way that wireless network operators? So if I'm a if I if I'm an enterprise wireless architect, what can I do with that extra spectrum? How do I adapt it into my architecture? So you could do a couple of things with it right off the bat. Um, if if you're a hospital, for for example. Um, yeah, there's a long running uh, debate about um, how to what is the right way to sort of segregate different kinds of traffic and in particular, uh, you know, taking life, you know, safety of life uh, traffic and, and putting it on unlicensed frequencies. So um, with this new band, it becomes possible almost out of the gate to create uh, uh, almost a completely segregated set of spectrum for new classes of applications. And there's enough of it uh, in in some countries that you could actually partition it into multiple subbands uh, mm -hmm. if you wanted. 
uh, you know, if I'm a manufacturing plant, uh, you know, it's the same sort of logic applies, right? If I need very low latency types of applications. So the, um, yeah, obviously these are dependent on clients becoming available, but that's going to happen very quickly. So I could um, see a are, situation where in a hospital, the machines that go beep, you might have three classes of machines, very important beeps, not yep. so important beeps. And the very important ones might get dedicated to a set of spectrum range, which is actually reserved to a very small number of high priority devices and then so on down the stack. And I could artificially create that des architectural design inside of my network myself without having to, like I don't need standard support to make that happen. Yes, that's that's exactly correct. Um, it also applies to things like voice, for example, right? Uh, Wi-Fi voice is a huge application in healthcare and uh, of course, it's always competing with other applications on the spectrum. So mm. if you wanted to leave five gigahertz in effect for the patients, right, you can move all those, you know, house services, if you will, up into six gigahertz. Right. That makes sense. So there's a benefit there. Then you've also, we also talked about the increased bandwidth. But the other side of this too is that six gigahertz is a very low range. That's both a feature and a bug in the sense that you can have much smaller ranges where the signal can work. So you have high bandwidth, but over a much shorter distance. Is that right? Yeah, correct. It's it, That's the same logic as applies to the five gigahertz band, which is really the sweet spot, I think, in terms of propagation, right, in both in both sort of uh, aspects, right? It's, it's far enough that you can, you know, it... You, you you can and it's got an online of sight properties, right? So you can really yeah. light up, you know, through uh, you know a wall or two uh, in in a building. But on the other hand, it doesn't propagate so far, right? That you you know you 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 can't create these very high density systems, right? And it doesn't end up in the street or across two yeah. blocks away. It literally just ends up yeah, not getting exactly. much further through a wall. And that has the ability then to have much more fine grained control over reach and where the signal. So you don't get overlapping regions. So you, as an architect, you might get much greater fine control over. AP placement and antenna design, I think. Yeah, correct. And as part of the advocacy, um, you know, we, we pushed hard and uh, we were gratified that the rules have sort of come out the way that we wanted uh, to make sure that there's enough trans allowed uh, EIRP or transmit power mm. uh, so that we can match the coverage of the two bands from a single device. Well, I think this is also really interesting for emerging edge you know, edge networking, as we call it, which is a sort of a bloviated analyst term for uh, new ways of connecting things to the edge of network. And I often use the metaphor of a factory coming online, which is now able to have lots and lots of sensors installed, you know, vibration sensors, noise sensors, and then those sensors are feeding up data. You know, you might want to put a vibration sensor on a mill and if the vibration continues to get outside of a certain range over a year, you know that the bearings are shot and you need to replace the bearings or you need to schedule maintenance. And these are the sorts of things. And if I have this sort of fine grain control from the Wi-Fi, I can place my APs the right way to maximize the, the capability and improve the reliability too as well. Yeah, exactly. Now we should not limit the conversation, of course, to you know healthcare or or manufacturing. So you know the the uh, another big you know fairly obvious use case uh, is the you know the large public venue scenario, which would you know span everything from university lecture halls to you know airports and stadiums. Mm -hmm. Uh, and as you know, these these facilities, um, you know, have been really bandwidth challenged for a long time. Uh, and and so, you know, I think, for example, in terms of digital learning initiatives in a classroom, being able to do, you know, um, uh, uh, testing, uh, real time testing uh, in classrooms and so on. Um, six gigahertz is going to be very impactful there, uh, among other things, because it, it it gets us back to these really wide channels, which can um, clear the air and, and provide a much faster access for everyone. Um, yeah. So I assume that with this new uh, spectrum, I need a new radio in my AP. Is that correct? Yeah. So it's it's a new it's a new radio on both sides. So you need a on the X, on the infrastructure side, uh, you'll need uh, something that includes six gigahertz. And on the client side, you'll need you know the it'll have to uh, be capable of tuning to any of the three Wi-Fi bands. And I understand that Aruba's got a new AP, the six E, which has uh, one of each radio. That's exactly right. We we announced the uh, AP635 about uh, two weeks ago, uh, which is tri-band uh, two by two uh, access point, and uh, it uh, is uh, very exciting to be. Uh, you know, we 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 think basically the first enterprise vendor out the door with this, and and that's actually important with you know in terms of because uh, you know, we are still very much in the advocacy phase. Uh, you know, as I said, we've only got forty countries that have made decisions so far. So part of what companies like ours are pushing so hard to get to market is that we're trying to validate the just you know the the investment essentially that these regulators are making uh, because this is a massive amount of spectrum. I mean, there is no historical comparison for 
this amount of spectrum rolling out so quickly in so many countries. So what about the client side then? Obviously now APs are coming to market uh, on the device side. Do you have a sense of what's available now and when we might see a proliferation of new devices with the correct radio? It's small right now, but it's going to, it's going to expand very quickly. So the, yeah, on the laptop side, you know, the, uh, you know, Intel uh, is shipping uh, their AX210 card, which is, this is public information that's been available for some time. And I believe it's going into some laptops now. Samsung Galaxy S21, I think was the first smartphone to ship with uh, 6E support. And I, I believe uh, it is probably a mishmash of some other things, but um, I would be shocked if, you know, you didn't see Apple devices with 6E support by the end of the year. We're seeing a lot of emphasis come out around IoT networks and low power. When for a while yeah. there, we played with the Bluetooth sensor market and tracking people, and that's found its own niches in the market, but hasn't seen widespread deployment. Is there something in six gigahertz band in terms of standard definitions for like low powered devices and uh, track? So tracking users. So where is somebody in a, in a business, you know, so I can check that they're okay. Is there say or use them for safety monitoring, that type of stuff. Is there something in there for that? There, there's some low power features in Wi-Fi six, but it's not six gigahertz specific uh, in, mm. in that sense. So things like the target wait time, which is a, a new power save mechanism that is basically allows every device to choose how often it wakes up, right? Mm. Which, which can provide massive battery savings. Uh, and then there's something called a 20 megahertz only station. So let's say I am running one of, you know, one of those wide, uh, you know, four lane channels. You know, if I'm a wearable, for instance, or I'm an IOT device, like you're talking about, I don't need 80, 80 megahertz, right? And, and radios, uh, you know, burn power very quickly. So Part of the standard provides for a, a device that can just fire up a single 20 inside of an 80. Uh, mm. And so there are features like that that are available. But, you know, I, I, the other thing that I, I, we should probably get to, um, uh, or I hope we're able to get to at some point is, is um, you know, talking about the other RANs that are present in enterprises, because I think this is where, you know, things like Bluetooth and Zigbee, among others, uh, you know, even CBRS start to come into play. Yeah. Can you tell us about this overlap between RANs and the, the enterprise Wi-Fi? Yeah, I'd, I'd be delighted to. So I've been, you know, talking with you know, uh, you know, CIOs and and senior IT leaders for some time about what I I now call sort of the multi RAN, multi band enterprise. RAN is from the cellular industry. Uh, it just it just stands for radio access network. So Wi-Fi is a RAN, right? 4G is a RAN, um, but so is Bluetooth, and so is Zigbee, and so is private LTE, and uh, and and so on. Uh, if I'm in a hospital. And I'm running wireless medical telemetry, uh, WMTS, that, that's another RAN. And um, the reason I think it's important to, to start talking about this in the enterprise is we're already multi-RAN. We just don't really think about it. And so when, uh, it, you know, it's been posited by some in the cellular industry that, you know, 5G is going to kill Wi-Fi. And uh, of course, that's, that's, you know, complete baloney. But this notion, this positioning that it's sort of a binary choice is really the wrong way to look at it to start with, because we're already past two choices, right? Aruba has been shipping access points with Bluetooth since 2014. Now all of our Wi-Fi 6 and 6E products also have uh, Zigbee built in. So that's three RANs on three bands if you if you include six gigahertz. <laughs> mm. <laughs> um, and, and, and now, um, you know, with CBRS coming into play in the United States and, and soon in, uh, you know, it won't be called CBRS, but uh, private LTE in other countries, we are gonna see private cellular networks start to emerge as well. And all of these things are tools in the toolbox of the network architect to solve discrete business problems. I think it's interesting that we're seeing a lot of a push around private 5G. And personally, I'm a little dubious that there's a wide or a large market for it. I believe that Wi-Fi generally solves most of the requirement. There are certainly niche markets where a 5G network, like if I'm a mine in the middle of the desert somewhere that's, you know, 20 kilometers across, I'm an open pit mine, 5G, a private 5G would be a good way to replace their legacy radio networking, right? But do you see this as kicking into that standard? So would the arrival of 6E be a step towards avoiding having to go down the private 5G path? 
So yes and no. Um, mm. And and I'm thinking actually, as we're talking, we should probably do a, <laughs> another yeah. session in the future on on private uh, private LTE, private 5G. But yeah. uh, in short, again, it it's, it varies from enterprise to enterprise, uh, and and you know uh, how they're funded from an IT perspective, what types of data they need to move, and 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 so on. Um, mm. But I can tell you that you know we're um, you know, we we do have an offer in that space, and uh, we are seeing you know, significant interest for specific use cases. And, you know, some of those use cases are things around, you know, improving the indoor cellular experience, right? Mm -hmm. And so we've, Aruba's approach to that has been to take a sort of all of the above approach. So we, you know, we, on the one hand, we have the, uh, you know, the CBRS product and we're working to bring out a neutral host capability, um, you know, for customers that that mm -hmm. are able to, uh, you know, that have that need. Um, on the other side, um, you know, we're also trying to make Wi-Fi better in terms of cellular integration. And so last year we introduced a service called AirPass, uh, which allows uh, Wi-Fi devices with SIM credentials to automatically connect to Wi-Fi networks. And so, and these, these techniques, you can actually combine them together to get sort of even more coverage. So there's not necessarily one correct solution. Yeah, I would agree with that. I just, I think that the challenge we I see with 5G is it's much more complex to own, you can't just buy it and deploy it like you can a Wi-Fi. And I wonder how many people have realized that at this point. So again, I'd say let's let's talk about that down the line. Um, yeah, yeah. But you know, the 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 product we're working with um, is is designed specifically to address that challenge. It's it, you know, it's a self-contained product. There's no duct taping or pulling together of you know wildly disparate parts. At the end of the day, for this technology to be successful in the enterprise, it's got to look and feel to the network administrator, like any other piece of, of, you know, enterprise network gear. Right. And so it's got to be simple and it's got to be, uh, you, you, you can't expose all this complexity of the three GPP world. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's where wireless succeeded. It was simple. Yeah. Well, that does wrap up our time. And it seems like we could talk a lot more about this. So maybe we'll have to have you back, Chuck. But in the meantime, if folks want to do some research on their own, where would you send them? So uh, just go to www.arubanetworks.com, uh, search for Wi-Fi 6E. Uh, and uh, you'll find a complete set of resources there. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Chuck, for joining us. And thanks to Aruba for being a sponsor. If you want more nerdy technical conversation, you can find this and many more technical podcasts all for free, along with our community blog at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at Packet Pushers. Find us on LinkedIn and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much wireless networking would never be enough.